0: John Furling tells this deeply interesting story in a graceful and fluent narrative that centers on these extraordinary men and the choices that they made. Rarely in American history did such a tightly centered event have such sweeping consequences for this great republic. And now, Adams versus Jefferson. Chapter 1. Election Eve, 1800. President John Adams awakened early on the soot-black morning of October 13th, 1800. He dressed hurriedly, not only to fight off the lancing autumn chill that penetrated Peacefield, his home in Quincy, Massachusetts, just south of Boston, but because he was to depart that morning for the nation's capital. His vacation was at an end, fourteen marvelous weeks of seclusion from treacherous politicians and political chicanery. Detached even from the presidential election of 1800, though he was a candidate in that contest. During the languid summer, Adams had managed his little farm, a few indifferent acres that splayed out from the house, where grains were grown and four or five dairy cows and weary horses pastured. On occasion, he worked alongside the hired hands, and he enjoyed daily hikes of three or four miles. But he spent most of each day in his dark study, where he read and reflected. Adams devoted as much time as was necessary to the presidency, reading every report sent to Quincy. But, truth be told, there was not much to do that summer and fall, as Congress was not in session, and the members of his cabinet were in the Capitol tending to their respective departments. Adams's mood that morning was bittersweet. He was delighted that his wife, Abigail, who planned to follow a few days later, would remain at his side in the capital until he returned to Quincy, whether in March, if he was defeated in the election, or the next summer if he was victorious and embarked on a second term. At the same time, a dismaying heaviness weighed on his heart, as most signs indicated that he could not win re-election. Adams, who would turn sixty-five in the course of his journey, was not ready to retire. Defeat, he thought, would be ignominious, a humiliating repudiation of his presidency, and an end to a public career that had begun nearly thirty years before, when he had been elected to the First Continental Congress. To lose this election, in short, meant that Adams would be sent home to die— In 1800, people spoke of December 3rd as Election Day. It was the day designated by Congress for the presidential electors of each state to assemble in their respective capitals and vote. The electors were popularly elected in five states. Elsewhere, they were selected by state legislatures, and as that process had been underway since the spring, observers had an inkling by October of the way things were unfolding— Nevertheless, until the electors met and voted, no one could be absolutely certain of the outcome of the contest. Soon after, Adams finished his breakfast of gruel on this brisk morning. His carriage, a two-wheeled chaise, pulled up at his door. In addition to the driver, John Breesler and William Smith Shaw were aboard. Breesler, a family servant, would care for the horses and ride ahead to arrange for accommodations— Shaw, the First Lady's nephew, had graduated from Harvard four years earlier, and in 1798 the President had hired him to be his secretary. He was a good listener and an energizing conversationalist, but he knew well enough to remain mum when Adams, who could be gruff and grumbly, did not wish to be bothered. Once the coach was packed and Adams had climbed aboard, just as dawn spilled over the horizon, it pulled away with a shudder amid great squeaks and groans. The President had made the journey south from Quincy innumerable times since his first trip to Congress in 1774, but this time there would be an important difference. Always before, when he sat in Congress, and all for but a single year during his vice-presidency and presidency, Adams's destination had been Philadelphia. But over the summer, the national capital had been moved to what was officially styled the Federal City in the District of Columbia, a place that already was universally known as Washington. On this 400-mile journey, the President's party likely followed his customary route to Philadelphia, initially heading due west through Dedham and Framingham, and finally to Worcester, where they would have lodged that first evening— In the pink-blue glaze of sunrise the next morning, when fog yet hazed the landscape, they started out again, continuing west past worn farms with shaggy fields. On the third day, departing Springfield, they finally turned south, and in late morning they took leave of Massachusetts, plodding slowly into Connecticut, which required three wearisome days to cross. Travel was arduous and filled with heavy tedium. The carriage, which was unheeded and without shock absorbers, bumped and swayed across slender, rutted roads that were just a sudden storm away from turning to a fetid ooze. Charles Dickens, who rode America's roads a generation later, advised his readers to go by boat if possible, as even a brief journey was sufficient to make the jostled traveler think that every bone in his body had been dislocated. What is more, at day's end, the hungry and exhausted traveler often despaired of finding comfortable lodgings. Glum inns, redolent of the noxious scent of wet leather, stale tobacco, tallow, alcohol, horse blankets, and accumulated cooking odors, frequently awaited the sojourner. "'offering sparse quarters and barely edible cuisine. "'Adams's gig proceeded south through Hartford, Middletown, and New Haven. "'Then westward, along the blue-gray Long Island Sound, "'through Milford, Norwalk, and Stamford, "'and finally, briefly, into New York State. "'Adams liked to avoid New York City, "'which even then could slow one's pace.' and he probably crossed the Hudson River by ferry into New Jersey at Yonkers, several miles above Manhattan. Moving south again, they needed nearly four days to reach Philadelphia, and two more thereafter before Baltimore was sighted. Thirty-six miles remained to be covered to reach Washington. Adams made it in a single day, bumping through the dark and densely forested region, which appeared to be uninhabited save for occasional half-hidden windowless cabins. "'occupied by haggard black families. "'Gone were the intermittent villages of the northern states. "'It was as if at Baltimore the President had passed through a curtain "'that separated two different worlds. "'Below Baltimore, he was in the sparsely settled slave south, "'land of cash crops and great planters, "'and the home of his principal adversary in the election of 1800, "'Thomas Jefferson.' the Vice President of the United States. Like Adams, Jefferson had spent the summer and fall of 1800 at home. In mid-May, when Congress adjourned, he had returned to Monticello, his mansion atop a tall hill overlooking Charlottesville and the remote Blue Ridge Mountains of western Virginia. He left much of the management of his estate to his overseer, But there was plenty to keep the vice-president busy. He tended his flower gardens and entertained a bit. And he supervised the labor of some of his chattels, especially the several teenage boys who toiled in the nailery not many steps away from his mansion. But what held the greatest allure for Jefferson was the simple joy and solitude provided by his library. He spent most of each day in his study— churning out a voluminous correspondence, reading, reflecting, and during that summer, writing a manual of parliamentary rules to guide those who in the future would sit in Congress. Jefferson's manual, as it was simply called, has remained in use in Congress for more than two hundred years. Jefferson kept abreast of public affairs, reading several newspapers that were delivered to Monticello, and conducting an extensive correspondence with political activists in several states. That summer, too, at the request of a Richmond paper, the Virginia Argus, he jotted down some notes on his life and career.